Welcome to the Rip Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's go on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Our guest today is Joe Mabry, who is a songwriter and guitar player for the band Capstan. Here goes. Joe Mabry, welcome to the Riff Hard podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Congratulations on your song release yesterday. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're really stoked on it. Yeah, it seems like things are starting to move a little faster for you guys. A little bit now. Yeah, things are sort of starting to pick up momentum, especially with like some of the organic reach of these songs has been a little better, actually a lot better than some of it in the past, especially with things like YouTube and and things like that, which we haven't been, you know, done so well on in the, in the past. But yeah, um, you know, we just got added to some playlists on Spotify too. So yeah, things are really picking up like as we're going to release this album next week. What can you attribute that to? Like, is it just that the music's been out there long enough to have reached enough people and it's just kind of synergistically happening the way that it happens? Or do you think it's because of the Spotify playlists that then help YouTube and so on and so forth or kind of all the above? Or do you think it's something else? Yeah, I think all those things definitely play into it. People hear us on Spotify and then go to YouTube or primarily it would seem that because we get a ton of comments on, on these most recent music videos that have been like, this is the first time I'm ever hearing this band. Um, I've never heard of these guys before. So um, yeah, however that's happening, I'm not entirely certain, but it's great to just see a lot of new people kind of discovering us through that platform. It's just kind of a combination of everything, I guess. The reason I'm asking is because uh, I get asked this question all the time from people. It's like, how do you promote a band? How do you get it out there? And I've always thought that, you know, the basics are the same no matter what. That you have to have music that people are going to like. If you don't have that, then none of this other shit even works. But I have a theory that the infrastructure for getting a band known is already there. Like you don't really need to do anything special. Like YouTube already exists. Spotify already exists. The way that all that works is already there. It's already built. So you just kind of need to plug into that with something that is capable of taking advantage of that infrastructure, meaning something that people like enough to share and research more. Absolutely. I guess the dreaded algorithm that <laughs> some people are always <laughs> talking about, right, is it plays a big factor in that as well. Is like, 
you know, what comes up on your recommended YouTube, like when you go to the front page, right? So like, it would seem to me that like a little bit more like with the amount of plays and views that we're getting on YouTube compared to the past releases that, you know, either one, the music is better and people are sharing it more kind of like you were just talking about, which I hope is also the case. But in addition to that, it would seem that it's smoothing into the algorithm a little bit better. Well, that's what I mean by the infrastructure. So the algorithm is the infrastructure and it's from my understanding, I mean, it's kind of above my pay grade, but (laughs) from my understanding, the moment that things are doing better organically, it pays attention and that's what gets it to basically favor your videos or whatever you post. Right. It's kind of like a little bit of everything though. It's also got to do with even something as simple as hashtags and, Mm -hmm. you know, the SEO score of the actual video. I don't know if you're familiar with a program called TubeBuddy, but that's uh, good for reading what other people are doing as well. (laughs) Just to check to make sure that you're actually going to the right demographic of people with stuff like that. I'm not familiar with TubeBuddy, but I am familiar with those types of programs. Like uh, I used one for a long time on Instagram for hashtags before. I think that they kind of killed the reach of hashtags in the past six months. So I don't really use it anymore. But the pro- what it w- this program would do is uh, if you typed in, like say, hashtag guitar god, it would give you all the hashtags that were like it and it would tell you how many people were using it at a time. So it could be like guitar God, 5 million guitar gods, 200,000 gods of guitar, 10,000, you know, stuff like that. It was really, really useful because then you could pick a hashtag that was, that was going to be hard to be noticed in like the one that has 5 million and just put it there. But you could pick the ones like it where there's less competition and it was highly, highly effective ever since then. The uh, reach of hashtags on Instagram, at least, has been kind of uh, neutered slightly. Yeah, I think I kind of noticed sort of the same as well with like the reach of like when I post, you know, just guitar videos. It seemed that they had gotten to fewer people, like my views kind of went down. Another big thing, though, that they changed is like when you post the smaller 30 second clips to reels, those get way more views than, you know, just posting like a hard post on your actual page. I just posted one the other day and it got like over 2000 views when like that's way more than I normally get if I, you know, just typically post. It's the same on YouTube as well. They changed to uh, adding shorts where it's kind of like Instagram, but on YouTube and they were getting a lot more views and likes. But the good thing about all these tools we have, it gives us an opportunity just to post our music in every single possible place. The more people you reach in different places, then you're going to get noticed more. I think it's good that we have this now because when I started touring, it (laughs) definitely wasn't like this. No, it wasn't. I'd say that the most important thing, in my opinion, is if someone's going to actively try to do this is to just keep up with how things change. Because we do have all these uh, outlets available to us, but the way that they work is constantly changing. You know, like we were just saying, like now they're favoring reels instead of regular posts. If you look at Facebook, for instance, there was a time period where your Facebook page was, you know, relevant. I mean, it's been a few years since it's been relevant, but there was a time period where 
your Facebook page was relevant. And then they completely killed the reach on that. And that was that. And I remember I had a producer on the URM podcast who, um, he's a little older. And when we released it, uh, we did an Instagram post and, uh, and I think I posted inside of our Facebook group, but we didn't put it on the Facebook page because what's the point? We never post stuff to that unless it's a paid advertisement. Um, and the guy, the guy got mad because he thought that we weren't promoting his episode at all. And I was trying to explain that, uh, yeah, that, that, that doesn't matter anymore. Facebook page has no reach. So we don't post to that because it will actually hurt the promotion of, uh, of your episode. Like we got this and the bridge with him was kind of burned a little bit. Cause he refused to believe me. Like he really got irate about it and thought that we were like trying to, I guess, shelve his episode or something like that. Anyways, point being, this guy has horrible social media reach and he's done some platinum records and stuff. Like he should have much bigger social media reach and he tries. But the thing is he keeps trying with outdated methods. So yeah, while we do have all this available to us, I think it is very, very important to keep up with what the platforms are favoring. Um, as long as you do that, and you post pretty good content, you should be all right. But if, uh, you know, it's 2021 and you're trying to uh, post YouTube links to your Facebook page, <laughs> good luck. God be with you. We jokingly call Facebook like the shit tier social media. Like we, you know, it's just, it's like your, it's, it's your parents' social media. Like the people who are on there, like my aunt, mm -hmm. like that, like nobody's on Facebook anymore. The thing it's good for, and I don't think this is relevant for a band, is uh, for the groups. Facebook groups are really good, but that's it. <laughs> There's other platforms coming up or that have come up that are potentially rivals to the Facebook group system, like Discord, for instance. I still haven't seen a platform do groups or communities better than Facebook does. It's a shame, really, because as he said, it is known as the shit tier <laughs> sort of... Uh, oh, it is. It's just old, isn't it? It's like people are constantly wanting to search for new things. Well, yeah, but YouTube is just as old. That's true, but it's different. Older. Older, yeah. Yeah, but it's different, isn't it? Like when you go to YouTube, most people would go there for learning how to like unblock their toilet or, you know, how do I build a bed for $50? <laughs> it's a little bit of a different sort. It's not like you're not going there to socialize. You're going there to fix a problem. And I think that that's the difference. I think that's why YouTube has managed to maintain its, uh, I guess, fan base for lack of a better word. I think one of the things that people hate about Facebook is the guy, you know, the, the guy in the pickup truck ranting at the camera kind of vibe. You know what I'm talking about. But YouTube has plenty of that. YouTube has like so much of that bullshit on there. But for some reason, I think there's so much great content on there as well that's super easy to find that it stays relevant. Facebook, good luck. <laughs> exactly. Like, I mean, you talk about the pickup truck guy rants. It's like, I feel like on Facebook is... Facebook is primarily that or just like, is that, you yeah. know, and as opposed to YouTube, which is more almost representative of the Internet as a whole, because you can find anything on YouTube. 
literally anything. Literally anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's like going down the dark web. <laughs> it's like if you type in peeling an orange and you go to page number like 60,000, like what, what are you going to find there? I've always wondered those kinds of things. Like when you go to like the darkest, darkest corner on a really mundane topic, <laughs> you start to find some really interesting things. All right. So speaking of content, do you consider your content creation as a big part of your strategy for getting yourself and the band known? So like personally for me, maybe not so much. I will admit I'm not the best, you know, social media guy. Like the main thing I try to do is like, you know, just post guitar videos semi-consistently, but a lot of the times like I'll fall off and like posting consistently is really important when it comes to like, you know, growing social media following and things like that. But yeah, when it comes to the band, I guess, although our, our music is not like comical, like a lot of the times when we post like content about us personally, or like, you know, kind of like lifestyle tour stuff, like we're very goofy people. And I think a lot of our fans who like follow us hard and like, you know, members of our Patreon, they all really like that about us. Like we're, we try to be really personable and just like, you know, we like to laugh and have a good time. So I think that is like what kind of grounds us and connects us more to some of our fan base. Like I mentioned, like we do Patreon and all that, but we have like a Discord group there that also is like just, you know, they can all talk with each other, talk with us like we're in there. We just chat. And like, I think just being available and personable to, you know, fans of your band is like something that we have all felt has helped us grow a lot and has helped like forge lifelong fans. And uh, I think it's a little underdone or underappreciated like I feel like a lot of the times like people in bands just want to like be cool or like you know they kind of don't tend to kind of connect with their fans on like a personal level like that so I, I think that's kind of something that we really strive to do just to make us seem like real normal people which we obviously are <laughs> we're no one special so it's interesting I think that that does work for certain bands and for other bands it's the opposite I think all depending on the vibe and the type of fans that you have and how you want them to perceive you. I think that there's certain bands that are like, we are one of you, you know, for us, by us, like we are one of you. A good example of that as well is While She Sleeps. I'm not familiar with them, but. Yeah, they uh, they do something similar than that. But I can't imagine someone like Gajira wanting to do something like that. Correct. Right. It doesn't work for everyone. I, I definitely see that. Yeah. As you say, Ayala, I think it is totally dependent on the type of fan that you have. Just to reference uh, Bjork here. <laughs> if you uh, understand what I'm talking about. Well, uh, imagine Dimu Borgir doing that. I can't imagine. That's the point, uh, kind of. But, but I do think, Joda, your point, like, if if that's the kind of vibe your band has than actually being personable with your fans and actually taking that seriously, I think is a huge benefit of the ideas for them to see you as normal people who just have music that they love and connect with, then being as personable as possible, I think is the, is the move. It seems like the fans appreciate it. Yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of that has to do uh, as well with like, like the examples you gave of like, you know, like some like more death metal bands and stuff like it doesn't really make sense for them but like especially with the way we approach lyrics and things like that it's all much more about you know just personal struggle you know life experience things like that like you know 
like connecting with people, telling people they're not alone, that we feel the same way. So you're a music educator. I I mean, I give some guitar lessons to like a a few people. I I mean, I studied music in college for a while. I mean, I definitely am a big nerd when it comes to like music theory and stuff like that. Like I definitely nerd out hard on that. I guess I still would hesitate to call myself a music educator per se. Well, guitar teacher. So usually people that are to the point of teaching guitar who study music in college don't play the kind of music that you guys play. What role does uh, theory play in your writing or does it? Definitely a bit. So I'm sort of, I'm definitely the oddball when it comes to that in the band too. Um, other than Scott, who I've now kind of been casually teaching music theory to, our drummer for a couple of years, like no one else in the band is really into that or cares too much about it. But I mean, being the one who writes all the music, like theory does play a bit into, you know, the way that I write. I definitely use it a lot. But definitely keep to a convention of like typical musical vocabulary for like the post-hardcore genre, which is more or less what we fall into, you know. So like obviously that kind of stuff is harmonically not that complex. It's relatively easy to like, you know, you know what chords, chord progressions to use, you know what works. And like I would use it a bit when it comes to like being more harmonically, you know, explorative. I've kind of stepped away from that a bit. Uh, compared to like some of our older stuff, like first couple EPs where there's like a little bit more adventurous modulation and things like that. It's funny you say that in your new song, I actually heard something that was quite interesting harmonically that I wasn't expecting around the three minute mark. And it goes to this chord. And I think it's like the major seventh of the scale. And it was completely, like it worked and it sounded great, but it wasn't what I was expecting from post-hardcore. So I would actually argue and say that some of those theoretical tendencies are still there in your playing. And it's probably not that you're actively thinking about it. It's probably just there from learning from when you were at college and post-college. Yeah, you're probably right about that. Because I do, I mean, I do like to, I don't know, I'd like to throw on some spice here and there and kind of keep people on their toes. Like, you know, a certain chord here or there, they might not necessarily expect. So, uh but yeah, it, it could be a little more subconscious too, because especially on this most recent record, which is about to come out in just a couple of days, um, I definitely was trying to be very mindful about just making it as accessible as possible and, st- and not like, you know, kind of um, <laughs> getting so like, I'm just a huge fan of like prog metal and stuff like that. Like I love it. So like, I always kind of just would overdo it a little bit in the past. Oh, I do that every day. <laughs> so <laughs> the vibe. Yeah. I, I've, I've tried to just, you know, focus more on songwriting and chorus writing and lyric writing and, you know, not necessarily just, you know, <laughs> shredding all the time or like doing these weird rhythmic parts or it's quite difficult to switch that off, much like theory, because I think the guitarists naturally always gravitate towards the most difficult thing that they can play, especially in the the heavier genres. I think it's just a product of that's what sounds cool to you in the moment because you're almost overthinking that this is this is too easy, it can't be good. So what was your method for sort of switching that switch off? Because I've not been able to do that yet. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Like that, I feel like that's been me to a T uh, throughout the years is like, you know, I I had a real hard time just like dialing it back. Like, uh, 
you know, you mentioned thinking, like equating hard to play with good music. And those things are not the same thing. Like, you know, (laughs) not even close. So, um, yeah, I guess what really kind of helped me was like, as much as I still love and listen to like, you know, tons of shreddy prog metal, I like started listening to more genres. I feel like that is one thing that helped me a lot, especially be able to start to learn how to write songs from a different viewpoint. Um, So, you know, listening to things like pop music even, and I don't want to say simple types of music because those types of music are also complex in their own way. It's just... They're sophisticated. Yes. There's a different level of how they build a song into something big. There are still tons of parts and layers to them, you know? So yeah, I think really just like trying to broaden my musical horizons, not being such an elitist like I kind of was before and like, you know, just listening to, to more, you know, songwriting styles of music and not like riff writing styles of music. But when you do that, are you analyzing it through the lens of theory and school? A little bit. Like pop is like so different. Like if either of you are familiar with Reddit, like you know that that's where most of the internet elitists tend to live. And like, um, <laughs> <They> sure do. <laughs> I would be on like the music theory sub and like just talking about like pop music, like, you know, people will like try hard to like even analyze things through the lens of like common practice period music, like what like a dominant seventh chord is supposed to do and like what it's doing in pop music. And that's still in there a bit, but I definitely try as hard as I can consciously, if I'm thinking about it, to just be like, we don't have to look at everything in terms of stacked harmony. And like, if the melody of the vocalist is like singing a a sixth over like a chord that also has like the seventh in it on the guitar, sometimes it still sounds good. And I'm like, this in theory shouldn't really sound good. Like it's not necessarily conventional for like, but like, you know, that's the thing is like, not overthinking it. Like if it sounds good, it sounds good. I think that that's the way to expand on music is to do those unconventional, almost voicings from chords. Or as you say, like having a sixth in the vocal when there's a seventh on the guitar shouldn't sound nice, but occasionally it does depending on the context, what came before and what came after. Mm -hmm. And that's the only way for music to really develop is to do things that people tell you not to do. Yeah, agreed, 100%. So just out of curiosity, when you're like in the music theory sub, say that that scenario comes up, sixth in the melody, the seventh on the guitar, will people say that's wrong and rail on it, even if it sounds good? Yeah. That's what I thought. It's a bit weird. I remember when I was in school having to explain 2C5-1, the reason why Bach used that chord sequence at the end of every symphony. And I still don't know the answer other than that he liked it. I can't explain it any further than that. So I had to write a 4,000 word essay on it and I still don't know the answer. So I think it's just a case of if it sounds good to you, roll with it. Fuck everyone else. Agreed. (laughs) It's interesting. I just wonder if uh, a lot of people are not aware of what sounds good. They don't have their tastes developed to a point where something stands out to them enough to ignore theory or if they're not even thinking about whether something's good or not, just right or wrong. I've always wondered what that is. I guess a level of self-awareness, as it were, sometimes. Being able to look critically at things that you write is a necessary skill, 
you have to be able to gut things that you've written that you even like. You have to, you know, I don't know, just be self-aware about, is this good enough? How do you determine that? Uh, Well, that's where really a lot of the role of writing comes in like into play with the other members of the band right so they're almost like my gatekeepers for like having written this whole record you know vocal melodies lyrics all the instrumental everything i bring things to them and if everyone is like i have four guys who i'm showing this to and they're all instantly stoked on it then i know that it's good or at least i'd like to think i know that it's good and if they're like one or two people who are like eh, then i'm like okay uh, let me go back to the drawing board let me write something else and that's like part of the reason why on this record like i ended up scrapping way more material than i ever have in any previous capstan release um which I think is really important, which makes a good record, right? So, like, we ended up cutting, like, probably nine songs when, and then there are only ten on the record. So almost as many as we ended up with, we cut out. <clears throat> and we had never been, like, a band that... This was the first time we cut, like, a whole song, complete vocals, complete everything. Like, and we had... Gone. Yeah, we had never done that before. <laughs> We're like, yep, it's good. I like it, but it's not good enough for this record for what we want. So... Uh, that was a new process for us as well. Was it painful? A little bit. <laughs> I mean, there. I mean, yeah. There, there are two songs in particular that I do like. I there were certain parts about them that I absolutely loved. Like I really connected with. But then you know there were other parts in the songs, like verses and stuff, that are just like it's not grabbing. Not quite there. Brown. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you should try that sometime. What? Try scrapping whole songs? Yeah. I never have extra songs to scrap because <laughs> there's there's enough information for a whole song in one riff. That's the problem. What we were talk- discussing earlier with tech metal. I'm just giving you shit. <laughs> the other thing as well is, is that I normally know before the time the song is complete whether or not I want to pursue it further. For example, with the first record, I had a project that was about 10 hours long. And I want to say there was at least three hours of music in that project over that 10 hour length. Seven hours of garbage? No, no. Seven hours of probably just open space or bits in between songs, maybe just like repeats of riffs and stuff like that. I want to say there was about three total hours, maybe a little bit more. So I go through the same process, except I just never get it to the finished song stage. I've normally thought that I'll scrap that already, um, which then goes on to my label system, AL, which you think is pointless. <laughs> no, I don't think it's pointless. <laughs> I think your label system's great, actually. You just think I should throw away more stuff. That's what it is. Oh, I'm just giving you shit. <laughs> but I do think that there's something very freeing about trashing stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, I understand where you're coming from with the idea that, who knows, in five years, this one little sequence that you came up with could spark a whole song, a whole thing that you do that's great. I get that. At the same time, um, I think that there's something psychologically awesome about just deleting something that's not working and giving yourself the space to and to just know that you're going to come up with something else that's way better. Yeah. And just dropping it. I agree too. Into the ether to be gone and consumed speaking of ether what are you going to do about those two songs that you really liked um 
well, we've yeah, we've good question. We've contemplated, you know, just maybe releasing like you know two B side tracks later on down the line, but uh, we're not entirely sure if that's something we should do. It, it does seem to me, just I mean, kind of anecdotally, seems to be more common that bands are releasing B sides these days, just because if they have them around, it's extra content. You know, you can just put something out. If we were to like release them as b-sides like to be totally honest i would go back and like rewrite some of the parts like and just keep all the stuff i really liked so did you already record the songs no we didn't record them in the studio uh because we had cut them out but we have like a really extensive demoing process my our other guitarist harrison he's been very heavy into audio engineering for like quite a while now and so he has like his own studio and so we would always you know go there and like you know, have a space to work and then, you know, kind of make elaborate sounding demos. Um, so, uh, that gives us enough frame of reference to be like, we, we are, we know close enough to what this is going to sound like once it's, you know, fully produced. So it's not good enough. (laughs) Do I know Harrison? Possibly. I know he's been really into URM and stuff like that and like watches a lot of stuff. Was he ever involved over at the audio compound or? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah. He worked he, with Underwage. He like interned for him for a few months when we did our first full length, which Wade recorded. And then he stuck around Harrison uh, for a few months after that and like, you know, worked with Wade a bit. What year? Two thousand. 19 at the beginning of like the year or March, April, actually like April. Yeah. I don't, I don't remember if we were still there or not, but, uh, so you have a guitar player who has a sick enough studio to do work. What makes you go to someone like machine? For us, the big thing there was like just wanting awesome production ideas. And we thought that Machine would be a great fit for us because of the fact that he has done, he's extremely versatile. He's done so many different types of bands over the years. And we really liked that. Plus uh, some of our friends on other bands at our label had spoken highly of him um, as it is, who had done a full length with him when we were on Warp Tour together. And uh, he did Grayscale's most recent full length. We were just really intrigued by him being able to do heavier and lighter types of bands, but we we just wanted cohesive production ideas to make all the songs just pop a bit harder. And we didn't feel that, you know, that's something we're capable of as a band just yet. But I mean, I can't, you know, say enough good things about Harrison um, when it comes to his ability. Like he's become such a good engineer lately. Like and so it's definitely down the line is we're thinking of at least tracking everything ourselves, like doing a record mostly ourselves and then probably just getting it mixed by somebody else. But him doing a capstan record is almost certainly in the future. It's one of those things, though, as Brown can tell you and uh, I can say that engineering your own band kind of sucks. I have no frame of reference, but I can imagine that that could be the case. (laughs) What it makes it suck is the fact that it's never good enough. Yes. That's the problem, basically. Like when you employ someone else to do the record, in your case, Machine, he'll know what the standard needs to be, at least for him to be happy. When you do for yourself, that standard goes out the window. And the line is, is you can't see it anymore because it's all the way over fucking there. <laughs> and no matter how hard you try, it's just never good enough. 
they'll, they'll all, you'll always hear things that aren't there. That's the worst part. Like I like to call them ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not ghost notes because ghost no. notes are good. <laughs> yeah. And you don't have the boss basically to get you to chill the fuck out and stop focusing on minutia. That makes a ton of sense. Honestly, I can totally see us all doing that too. <laughs> then you have the relationship of the people in the band where it's more sibling-like than coworker-like in most most band situations are more sibling-like than coworker-like. And uh, because of that, the way that people take each other seriously is... They don't. They do to a degree, <laughs> but not not when it comes to like professional. It's weird, man. It's hard to explain, but having a tiebreaker come in or a boss come in like a producer, I think makes a huge, huge difference for just getting shit done. It does. And I, it was absolutely even more like, I mean, when we first started, like, cause you know, back in the day, um, like our first two EPs, like, uh, Harrison did those and like, we just, we sent them out to get mixed, but like, you know, we recorded everything in our living room back like 2013, 2014. But as we started to like, you know, go to different engineers and stuff for recording uh, a couple EPs and then the full length with Andrew Wade, it became quite apparent to us that like you mentioned having that tiebreaker, that that was like, we needed that really bad. <laughs> um, especially because Back then, like we would tend to even disagree significantly more than I feel like we have now because we all sort of we come from very different musical backgrounds, a lot of the members of this band. So it took us a long time to figure out exactly what we even wanted to do uh, with the band. So like having that outside input was crucial. Not just that, but uh, a good producer is going to enable you to perform at a level that you probably didn't know you were capable of because that's the only thing you have to focus on. Whereas when you're self-producing, basically I think that your attention is divided between producing it and playing it um, and managing the personalities and dealing with the financiers, whoever they may be. Whereas when there's a producer involved, say you're a guitar player, your job's to play guitar, the end that can lead to way better performances. I think that's what I've experienced at least. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense as well. Just not having to focus on everything. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, for me personally, like I'm already in the boat of having to focus on a bunch of other things because like, I mean, I like, I track all the guitars. Sometimes I track some of the bass. I like being the one who like wrote all the lyrics and everything. Like if there were questions about certain things, lines, like I had to be there to answer those talk about it like you know with machine and like anthony our singer so but yeah i think what you're saying makes a, a ton of sense but i'm already so invested in everything personally that's an okay place to be because it still evo evolves around the music yep i think the pressing space bar and the star key on a keyboard while you're trying to play your own guitar parts is actually more off-putting than anyone may seem detrimental detrimental yeah sorry i'm english can't speak it um <laughs> Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, just like throwing a mic up in front of a guitar or maybe the guitar tone, you don't really hear the guitar tone properly when you're playing the instrument. You don't really get to hear it until someone else's or you're listening to it back after what you've recorded. There's all these little things that pile on top. So I think that what you were going on about is 
perfect is still focused on the music, but I think they're focusing on, as I say, the keyboard, the screen, the mic position on the amp or all that other stuff. I think it's really helpful when someone else takes over that role. And then it means that your focus is exactly what you're there to do, which is to make the music as the best as it can be. Yeah. No distractions. None. (laughs) Brown, how the hell do you do it? Dude, I don't know. (laughs) Well, the last song that we recorded, I got um, Adam, who's our video guy and also a very good uh, mixing engineer to come and help me set up the amp at least so that I didn't have to think about that side of it. I was like, I like how it sounds, make it sound like it sounds. And then he did. (laughs) And that was good. But yeah, I mean, if if I could like get someone to track me again, because we did it on the last album, Carl Bone, his assistant tracked us and it was just way better because I could just focus on playing the guitar and the results speak for themselves. So you personally noticed quite a bit of difference then when when you got, okay, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I was way less stressed for the first thing. So that's, uh, I think that's one thing that, I mean, I'm sure Harrison is more than capable. And if you are the main one tracking and he doesn't have to track guitars, then it does kind of make sense as well. But if Harrison's got to track any guitars, then just get someone else to track it (laughs) and don't have the stress of it. And Al's been in that position too. I know that he recorded all of his own parts, probably the drums too, right? Yeah, up until a certain point. Once there was a record deal in in the situation um, and an album budget, I stopped doing it. That's smart. Yeah, because I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. The thing is, though, that compared to our other options before there was a budget, me tracking it was the best option because in those days... Nobody knew how to do metal. Not like I knew how to do it well, but I knew better than the people around me. But the moment that we could afford a real producer, engineer, did it. And uh, my playing shot through the roof. It was so much better when someone else, someone capable was tracking me, that is. I suggest it. Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, It's really interesting how all those little things that you don't really think about really do affect your performance when you're recording. Well, the thing is, you kind of said this before, but I want to harp on it for a second. You really can't hear yourself when you're playing. No, you can't. Like, first of all, like it's vibrating through your body somehow. So that's that's uh, messing with what you're hearing. And then if you're listening to, say, drums or a click track or whatever the hell it is you're listening to or another guitar, whatever it is, that's distracting you the noise of the pick, like if you're not using headphones and you can hear the pick in the room, that can uh, trick you into thinking that you're playing with more attack than you actually are. There's all these like distractors when you're actually playing that make it impossible to accurately judge what you're doing. Having someone else to judge it for you is the move. Right. Even just like with their own ears and not necessarily through like playing back the take you just did, even like you can just tell by watching sometimes or or seeing and I've yeah I've experienced that firsthand a lot myself is like you know thinking I've played a take better than I have or even you know more rarely sometimes thinking that a take wasn't that good and then listening back to it it sounds much better than I thought it's usually not that one but (laughs) sometimes actually for me it's normally that one actually (laughs) the one that I think I played shit is usually the one I played the best which is bizarre like I remember that happening a lot 
on the last record. Quite the pleasant surprise when it does happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice when you're on take two of it and then you don't have to play it again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not take 50. I'm usually a 50 take kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of Machine's energy? Amazing. <laughs> He's one of the coolest guys. Um, the whole thing, like it hit. That guy is wired. Yeah. Different. He is. You know, he's, uh, you can see the the left-handed brain at work, right? Because he's like a lefty. Like you can just see how he, he looks at things differently than most people do. But yeah, I mean, everything down from like the whole setup he has built out there in Texas and like, you know, getting away from everything, kind of being in the woods. Like we all love that in the band. Um, and then, yeah, his, his energy, like, especially with Anthony, our vocalist is like, he has like machine has like a magic with working with vocalists. Like he got some of the best performances out of Anthony that I've ever heard. We were like tracking multiple things at the same time. So like I was downstairs tracking guitar and Anthony was up in the little office uh, booth, you know, doing vocals, just him and machine. Um, and I can just hear machine like yelling at Anthony, getting him all like pumped up and hyped and, and it really worked. Anthony loved it. So yeah, it was absolutely amazing to have somebody like that. It was a different experience. Like we'd never gone through that before, but I think he got, especially out of Anthony, like I said, he got some of the best stuff out of us. For people who don't know, machine has this barn. It is called the barn. Well, machine shop, but the barn what he refers to it as and he's got a flamethrower there but it's in the middle of <laughs> the middle of nowhere i would say austin texas but it's like 45 not, minutes from austin yeah it's not really austin texas it's in the middle of nowhere and it's this barn that has been turned into like one of the most clever and clever i'm using that word on purpose one of the most clever recording studios i've ever seen where like every nook and cranny of that place is is like set up to do something cool recording wise. It's it's like a fun house almost. That that's the only way I can really describe it. I've never really seen anything like it before or since. Yeah, I, I was blown away by it. it. And it's aesthetically pleasing too. Like you walk in there, it's like, wow, this place is gorgeous. And uh yeah, getting to light some things on fire with the flamethrower was a bonus too. So <laughs> <laughs> It yeah, sounds like I cool. need to visit just for the flamethrower. Yeah, and to see the reamping doghouse. Ah, uh, that's guitar stuff. Let's. I don't need to bother with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, Brown, I know that you said that uh, you're like guitar stuff. <laughs> we don't need to talk about that, but uh, I think we should talk about guitar stuff. I think we should too. I want to hear a little bit about what goes into uh, getting the right hand tight for what you guys do the thing that i practiced for years that i still always now warm up with like ever since like two years ago i was able to play it is just the little herda pattern from bleed like that's like i always just like, like i just love warming up with that i'm a strict economy picker as much as i practice alternate picking for things like 16 note groups like triplets and three note per string runs like I'm a big fan of economy. So that's something I, I, I'm always kind of doing too. How does economy apply to what you guys do? I mean, most of the time I'm strict alternate picking, but like certain licks. The problem with economy, right, is that you get less attack sometimes when you're going in the direction of changing strings as you hit the next string. Um, but I always like 
I tend to just be a fan of, you know, work smarter, not harder necessarily, because I've uh, like, it just, it's easier. I feel like I can play cleaner, even though sometimes on recording, like there are certain parts, it's like, you have to alternate pick this because it just doesn't sound as good. But like when it comes to live purposes, um, you know, anytime I'm playing pretty much an odd group on any number of strings, I'm going to pick directionally twice in a row as I just change or skip or anything like that. I honestly think that if you're talking about lead work, there's a threshold with how fast you can go with alternate picking. And I know that there's some people who are insane with it, but by and large, I think most people that are super fast where uh, you think they must be alternate picking, you look closely, most of them are economy pickers, pretty much. I think that that's kind of like, one of the hallmarks of a really fast player is good economy picking. But yeah, I like that's that's the only way I was ever able to like get up to certain like fast speeds, like you know the eighth note triplets at like uh, I can pick every note like somewhere around like maybe on a good day like two thirty, not quite two forty, stuff like that. But then I do strictly alternate pick when it comes to like I said, even note groupings because there's obviously no way to do it otherwise, really. Um, <clears throat> And I didn't actually even realize I did economy picking for a while. I, I like someone pointed it out to me. I was like, "Oh shoot!" I did it. I, it was like ten years ago. Now it happened sort of naturally for me. But yeah, when you you talk about like getting to certain speeds, I think there's a quote Frank Gambal. Gambali. Yeah, that's it. that's how you say his last name. Uh, he he said, I think is like economy picking has a fifth gear and alternate does not. Like <laughs> I was like, that makes sense. That does make sense. What do you do to work on it? I have just uh, primarily, you know, practiced it in like um, string skipping, like because that's one thing I try to do. Like if I'm just doing like some sort of generic scale run, like sometimes like I, I like to practice doing every other string. So like, you know, if you start on the A, you jump to the G, go down to the D and then jump to the B or something like that. And because... I found that helps like smooth out and like just getting better at, at doing it. The other thing for economy that is weird at first, like when I, I noticed this was a couple years ago, I noticed that as I would do descending scale runs, I would straight alternate pick them because in order to economy, you had to start on an upstroke, right? So um, that's one thing that I've practiced quite a bit now to get faster at the descending scale run. So uh, starting, so up, down, up, up, down, up, up, down, up, because that wasn't necessarily apparent to me at first. And I'm like, why can I go ascending faster than I can go descending? And then that clicked. So then, you know, I learn to get better at starting things on upstrokes because that's another thing that can be awkward at times, but is really essential to playing certain parts. Like if you have a group of like, if you're playing some syncopated rhythm and there's like a group of five 16th notes going into something else on the downbeat, you need to start that group on an upstroke. You know what I mean? So like getting better at starting things on upstrokes has been like something I've worked on for a couple of years now. It's almost like planning out exactly what you're going to do in order to be able to actually play things at your best. I know that a lot of guitar players, before they figure this out, will basically play themselves into corners. I'm talking in terms of how they're picking things. They'll play themselves into corners or set themselves up for a very inefficient, difficult go at it or set up scenarios where they're going to fuck up the same thing every single time that they get to it or they're just going to be like a hiccup, their rhythmic 
hiccup. And I think that the players who plan this stuff out, like, you know, the five note grouping start with the upstrokes that the next thing you go to starts on a downstroke or whatever. It seems really simple, but not all guitar players do that. However, all guitar players I know who do that are pretty awesome and don't have those problems. Like you said, you plan it out. You got to figure out like what, like, because I'm, every guitar player has gotten to a point where they've tried to play a riff. It's faster or something or a certain part. And then you end up, you, you, just can't play it like there's something going on and that's the point where like you have to break down what exactly are you doing and what's going wrong well it's usually in my experience just one specific little part that's something like if i'm skipping a string or like you know there's this one little section it's like what do i need to do mechanically to be able to play this part aside from just crazy ridiculous speed things like most people are capable of like playing pretty difficult things on guitar like with the right amount of effort and practice but like knowing how to practice is it becomes sort of its own art form on like the higher level of technique most intermediate players i guess speed range i feel like unless you're talking about insane stuff like arc spire yeah. or something <laughs> nuts or like trying to learn jason richardson solos like unless you're talking about music like that I don't think that the big issue is speed within reason. I mean, people need to be decently fast to play rock or metal to any degree of competency. But I feel like most of the problems that I hear with people aren't based on speed. They're based on basic mechanics and um, improper planning. What are you, Brown? Like with me, I just downpick everything, mate. <laughs> no, I know, but what have you noticed in terms of that? I've noticed the with with downpicking. Obviously, the the attack isn't the problem. It's obviously there's a certain threshold with speed because obviously you can get to a certain level of speed, but as you're missing potential for the second hit, you're kind of limited by, well, the human body basically. It's um, more attainable to really reach those level of speeds with less stress on the body than it is with downpicking, obviously, because you're doing the same amount of movements where you would normally get two picks, so you're having to go a lot faster. But I've found that it hasn't really caused me any issues for this, the style of music that I want to play. Um, I've, I've obviously had to use economy picking and alternate picking within my, you know, within some of the songs that we've written, but... I found for the most part, I can just get away with it. Maybe it's just what I write just sort of caters towards that. But I've also found the same problems that you found, Joe, is that on descending runs when it came to economy and alternate picking, I also was slower and did notice that I had to sort of alter certain things. And there's one particular song that I had to do that with where it descends and then ascends. And I had to just sort of work out like, okay, I can't play this in the studio. What the fuck am I doing? It's not hard, but something's gone wrong. Um, so I think that it comes down to just, it, once you understand that there's a problem, it's about breaking it down and finding the solution to that problem. And I think that once a guitar player gets to a certain level, it's a lot easier for them to see those problems with, you know, an actual end goal, as opposed to just getting frustrated because normally it'll only take a couple of minutes to fix the problem. I mean, I can only speak personally from experience, but like as I started to learn guitar, as I was a couple years in and like started trying to learn some of like the metal songs by like bands that I really liked, the more beginner approach tends to just be like, it's very wild and uncontrolled. It's just like, I'm trying really hard to do this. And like, you know, you, you end up 
playing frantically almost or like overpressing a lot and just like as much as pick attack is very important especially when it comes to recording you know back in the day i would have a tendency to pick too hard I mean, like especially when it comes to like things like live performance where that's not necessarily as noticeable like the ultimate goal is cleanliness right you know it, it takes just so much time and experience to just be able to kind of step back with what you're doing and, you know, just really look at it critically. What about you, Al? It's hard to do. It kind of goes back to what we were saying before about not really being able to judge yourself while you're playing. That's that's why I definitely think it's important for people to record themselves. The thing that you can judge while you're playing is, you know, when you get to that same part that keeps fucking you up. You don't, you don't need to record yourself to be able to hear that. You just need to be honest with yourself about it. And I guess proactive. I've noticed that there's a lot of players too, who will fuck up the same thing over and over and over and then not, not really do anything to fix it. Just like a suit, just be like, that's the part I always fuck up and just let it be. (laughs) I like that in its own little way though. That's kind of cool. What's cool about it? I kind of always had a dream about just being able to turn up to a gig with just a guitar and just an amp and nothing else. Do you know what I mean? Like that, that's what I'm talking about by not giving a fuck. You know, like we play this style of music that requires noise gates, boosts and all this extra shit. Whereas I admire the people that, they play well enough, you know what I mean? And when you hear them play live with a drummer, it sounds great. Yes, there's a million fuck-ups, but at the same time, the fuck-ups is what kind of makes it in a weird way. It's not like a fuck-up fuck-up. It's like a controlled fuck-up. There's a difference. I'll need an example. (laughs) (laughs) Something like, um, let's take the Dillinger Escape Plan, because I think that that's actually quite a good example of this, where obviously... The guy can play it and he played it fucking phenomenally uh, live, but still there were fuck ups all over, but it was part of the show. So the fuck ups, you don't think that it's just because they were throwing chairs around and like, <laughs> hanging from the ceiling? Yeah, but what I'm saying is they might get to this this part, but the fuck up might have turned it into something really cool. That's what I'm mm-hmm. saying. I'm saying that it might just be that they've left it because oh, it sounds cool. Okay, but that's not what I'm talking about. That's not what you're talking about. Okay, cool. No, (laughs) I'm talking about the dude that plays a solo in his band. And there's this one part, like a string skip or a slide up to a note that he just always biffs and uh, never does anything to fix it. He's aware that he biffs it every time. And he's like, oh, fuck, it's that part. But then never actually sits down to fix it. That's, That's what I'm talking about. Right. Not not taking the time to be like, what exactly is happening with my hands right here that is preventing me from playing this like two note section of a solo, like which totally happens all the time. Yeah. It's interesting to me how many people will just let stuff linger in a really bad state. So I think that what you're saying is great. And I think that it's important for people to try to be constantly aware of when those things are happening, but not just be aware of them, actually do something about them. And like Brown said, it's kind of funny, like actually fixing those problems can be done in minutes. Yep, they can. Just a couple of notes before, a couple of notes after. Find out what your pick's doing in that moment. If you have to film a video, film a video. See what's happening with each of your hands. And then execute 
That's it. It's uh, I still I when when we haven't played a song forever, I have to do that generally for every song I haven't played in a year. Oh, I know that feeling. Yeah, I <laughs> when when COVID started, we we took a very long break from playing playing live, and when we got back to it, like I'm like, I don't remember how to play these songs at all. <laughs> I'm bad about that. When our drummer set up his drums in the room next door about two weeks ago, he was like, "Oh, let's jam through Animus." It's gone. It's completely gone. I can't remember how to play it. <laughs> I mean, have you ever played it live? Yeah. Okay. At least there's that. There's that, yeah. But then I, I filled in for Periphery in 2011. Within a year of doing that tour, I couldn't remember any of the songs. So I think it's a case of even if you do fix these little problems, there is a level of maintenance that still needs to be done at the same time. You can't just oh, oh yeah. You can't just fix it there and then do it once and think oh it's fixed. No, no, no. You got to maintain that for life. <laughs> Oh yeah, this is all perishable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh so a great way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> it sucks. I wish it wasn't, but it is. But Brown, like the thing about maintaining it for life is that I think people spend more time noticing mistakes and worrying about them and thinking about them and ruminating over them and all kinds of weird mental shit than just fixing them. And that's that's to do also a lot with how people you know, who are working together, approach a problem, debate the problem, talk about why it should be fixed or not be fixed. Should we do it? Should we not? In the amount of time that it took for people to flap their jaws, it could have just been done in five minutes. It could have been. It's a similar sort of thing. One thing to remember is that guitar players are the masters of procrastination. (laughs) (laughs) Amen. That is one thing to remember. Not all of them, but if it's not a big enough problem, a guitar player will just let it slide unless they're really, really into it, if that makes sense. I guess the thing is, I know that playing guitar is really difficult. And so in order to be really good, you couldn't have procrastinated. There's some stuff that you had to have done. So in my opinion, their procrastination is completely selective. (laughs) <laughs> which is why I don't have much patience for it <laughs> because they're usually very capable people. They just choose not to be. Yeah. I mean, come on, like everyone has those times when they really don't want to do something and, you know, it probably happens. I know there's been some things that I, I'm doing this because I've there's been some things that I haven't fixed on the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they do get fixed eventually, especially when it comes to, to recording a record. That's kind of like my time to fix those issues. So what are you focusing on now? Trying to remember Adam. (laughs) 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 No, uh, I'm just writing at the moment. So then once the writing's done, then I will spend the time doing these little nuance sort of, um, basically the little nuances, the, the space between notes, as I like to say, like it's the, the movement of one note to the next the pick position where it is in relation to the bridge, all those little nuances that really enhance each individual part. But it, you know, that's, that's one of the main reasons that I don't really like to edit guitars because that's like my time to do all of that in a setting where it doesn't feel like work. Does that make sense? Yes. Because the job has to be done. So I know that it has to be done for recording. So instead of me recording it down, getting someone to edit it and then I do it later. I do it all in that moment. So then I, so it's fixed there and then I'm putting all the practice in that needs to happen anyway. But at the time of recording, that's probably why I don't have someone to track this next record. <laughs> they can't be bothered to wait. What about you, Joe? What are you working on currently? 
probably trying to just uh, practice more. Like I, like I, I, it's not that I don't practice a lot. It's just specifically, I, I tend to be inconsistent with it. There are some days lately when I've only played guitar for like 20 or 30 minutes and like that kills me. So like, I'm like, that's a big thing for me that I'm trying to work on right now. I want to be a, like a much better um, like you just talked about not really editing takes so much when, when you're like recording, tracking guitars. Like I've always found that for me, although I, I consider myself a fairly clean, good live player that it's always been, and this may also have to do with how I kind of push myself to like the tip of what I'm capable of doing. Like whenever I write stuff like there's always at least one or two parts on a record that's like this is the hardest shit I can play (laughs) like you know so I think that has something to do with it but I've always definitely struggled in a recording setting to be able to do large chunks of a of a part without needing like you know some significant edits to it you know I think some of that also has to do with like my process itself for writing because although I don't consider myself that much of a procrastinating an individual sometimes <laughs> it will it'll happen like where to I'll I'll write things and then kind of especially as I'm focusing on writing other parts of a record I'll put off learning them to a degree that I should until like yep. I know that I have to do it live like you know what I mean so like sometimes yep. I'll I'll just be like, well, I can kind of put that off while I work on other stuff. I'll be able to do it well enough to record it with some substantial edits. And then like, I'll practice it much more after we're done recording as we like gear up to start playing it live. So that, that is something personally I would like to just get better at and change myself is just like, and I think something that's going to help me with that more as I do it is like, I've now started to like demo things in my bedroom on my own and just like, you know, recording things. And like, like you said, Al, like being able to listen back to like everything you're doing is can be very illuminating for certain parts too. And and so I'm just trying to do that, record more things, push myself to like, you know, like just the other day I was like writing sort of like a, like a tech death, like sort of necrophagist like inspired song. And I'm like, I can only record half a bar at a time. Like, and I haven't spent <laughs> a ton of time like practicing the song as a whole, but you know, I just want to be able to like, you know, get it be a better record not that i'm bad but just like be able to record the hard parts better when we go into the studio it really comes across a lot better even if you're comping because then you're not at least moving any of the takes it's a case of you're just taking the cleanest bits from multiple takes right which i guess to a degree is still editing but it still has this natural kind of element to it where it doesn't sound like the guitar's been stretched within an inch of its life, I guess is probably the best way to describe it. It's just time consuming. I understand that it makes sense to do the hard work after the records come out and you know exactly what songs you're going to play live, but I've always just done it this way. I don't know why. I guess it's just a case of I didn't know how to edit on my DAW until 2016. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cubase, you didn't get the multi-track editing. You couldn't edit multiple tracks at once up until probably a few versions ago. So I was just limited just to playing it. Yeah. Do you think that's what it was? I think that's what it was. I think it was to do with procrastination of learning the DAW. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, I mean, obviously you grew up on Pro Tools, AL, and obviously Logic. No, oh, sorry. Wait a minute. Cakewalk? No. What one was it? Logic. I started no. with Cubase. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. You, but how did and you... Then digital Performer. 
you couldn't multi-track edit drums on Cubase back then. It wasn't until the group chats did it. It was a really weird way of editing and it sounded horrible if you did it. The warp function. I vaguely remember. Yeah. So basically, I just could, didn't know how to edit guitars. I didn't know what lanes were so that I could have multiple takes on one track. Didn't know any of that stuff. So that's kind of where it was born from. So, you know, um, ignorance is bliss in this particular example. <laughs> I think that uh, if you want to get better at tracking takes, you just have to train it, right? Like you just have to try to actually do that and take detailed uh, assessments on how you're doing. It's something that'll get better over time. But I think really the only way to really get good at doing it is doing it. Yep. Not to like be super obvious about things, but you're going to get better at the thing you do more of. For sure. And that, that makes sense. Like I already kind of know my own problem. It's that like I, I did a little better with this record because this was like the first time where I was at least able to, albeit a bit sloppily, able to like play front to back Every song on the record going into the studio, both parts, rhythm and lead. Um, and there were, you know, a lot of parts that were really difficult and they definitely had to be edited substantially because like, you know, like you kind of mentioned as well, like there's so much to be said for the organic sound of parts that you just tend to lose, especially as you get into hyper editing, like just even things like string noise and like clear, like finger movements and, and stuff like that. Like if I'm like tracking a really difficult solo or something like that. And there, like maybe it goes into like a fast, like triplet run or something like being able to hear the transitions between the held out vibrato note right before that going into like a, a run. Like it, it just, it, though it's very subtle, it definitely adds a lot, at least to guitar players who are paying attention to that stuff. Cause average music listener, not so much maybe, but yeah, I, I really appreciate that kind of thing. It's just the space between notes. That's like the, the part that I associate with it. Some producers are very good at editing that and keeping that in, but still there's just an element of it that I can't quite hear when it comes to being edited, over-edited. I kind of want to hear mistakes, man. I want to hear that, you know, when that G string rings out slightly too long or I can hear a bit of nut noise on one note or something like that because that's what the guitar fucking does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's an annoying as fuck instrument that makes more noise than it should. And I kind of enjoy that. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. Just out of interest, how long did you actually have to record the guitars for the last record? So we were at the studio for four weeks and I it took me about just over three weeks to do all the rhythm and lead guitars and like three songs on the bass. That's a good amount of time. Yeah, that is a good amount of time. Like actually, he spent a long time on that. Actually, I was I was expecting you to say like ten days or something. No, because because the way uh, Machine runs, you know, his shop there is um, like his his assistant Julian tracks guitars, and he's a hell of a guitar player too. By the way, he's a whiz kid. But um, he he was tracking the guitars while Machine was either tracking vocals or like and some days we didn't exactly get to do full days either so i guess that kind of is part of it because sometimes they'd like track drums in the morning and then we, we would start later so only do a couple hours of guitar tracking in a day yeah three songs on bass and all the guitars in like just over three weeks it's a good amount of time yeah do you think that one of the reasons that not doing takes is so prevalent is also because most bands don't actually 
know what they're going to play before they enter the studio. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, they got to learn it on the spot, right? That's definitely a bit of a thing. And even like, I tend to kind of, I mean, I've like fucked myself over with that too, because like on this record, we were writing up until very recently into the studio. So like songs that we finished last, like I only had like three or four weeks to even practice those anyway, once we solidified what they were going to be. And then when you get into the studio and you're working with a producer, there are always parts that are going to change too. And then like, I, I ended up like, you know, just like, with some advice from like machine, like rewriting a few little parts, like in particular one lead part on the last track that was very challenging. It took me forever to track it because I like wrote it the night before and like hadn't got to practice it much. So like, yeah, that's like a a big thing for me, especially just specifically because of, you know, the way we write and uh, the way it takes a while to solidify anything. And then, there's only so much time to practice it. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, it kind of comes with the territory, but I think the reason I'm saying that is because you said that you were able to, on most songs, you at least knew most of the parts from start to finish, including lead parts. That's actually pretty rare. But I think that, again, just to be super obvious, if people want to do more takes, that's kind of a prerequisite. Exactly. And that was like a, another big thing for our band is like we we get so myopically focused on the writing process and like sitting there in the studio with Harry and like what everybody thinks about the songs and the parts and how they could be better as opposed to the actual performance side of things, which kind of, I guess, ties into what we were talking about. Because in, in a way, we do kind of self-produce, even though like we still go to a producer, but like we're all very intently focused on different aspects of the music. And so like we have never played songs together as a full band before we've recorded. Them. Yeah. That's the modern way. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Yeah. But it would be cool. Cause like I, I, one thing that always happens with us is we always play them live and change a couple of little things about them. But unfortunately with the way that the music industry is and the fact that everyone wants new songs now, you never really get the opportunity to try out new songs in a live situation. It would be cool to do that though. Wouldn't it? Just like, do a week of shows like just to test out an album's worth of material and just see if there's anything you want to change about it when you get up on stage. Yeah. I mean, that's like the, that's more like the old school kind of rock and roll method, right? Like, you know, that's sort of gone now. There is one song we kind of did that with actually. Um, it, it's like a minute and a half. Just uh, we, we recorded it and released it right after quarantine uh, l- last year. We called the song Live Bait because we always we only played it live because it was just like a minute and a half mosh song. So like whenever we were like, okay, we got to cut a song, but we still have like a tiny bit of time. We would just play that and just like bait the crowd into, you know, going hard in the pit for us. So uh, that was the only time we ever like played a song live and then recorded it later. Yeah, I guess that doesn't really happen too often. Yeah, definitely not for us. Not for most bands, I think. But God, there's just a level of tightness that happens after you've toured on a song. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I always wish that I could have re-recorded things after touring yeah. on them. The level that you know it is just impossible to achieve without touring it. It'd be really great to tour a whole record, playing just the record live solidly for like 40 dates around the States. And then one day off or two days off and then you go straight into the studio and record it. Yeah, that would be great. It'd be really sick because everyone would know their fucking part 
And it'll be tight as anything because you've just been playing it for 40 solid nights. Yeah, it would have that tour energy. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then you all track it live together. <laughs> I'm really into that. Unfortunately, it's completely unrealistic. I know. Completely it, unrealistic. It is. Yeah. But like some of my, like, I don't know, like favorite bands, like I, I'm a big fan of like Radiohead and they like, obviously it's very different from like techie metal, like, but they always like do that kind of stuff. And like, I, I love it. Yeah. But with Radiohead, you don't know if they're making mistakes or not. So, <laughs> so it doesn't really I, matter. I've got to say that the In Rainbow session are some of my favorite things to listen to and watch like that yeah that session is phenomenal great record but there is a certain amount of leeway that goes with that style of music that you just don't get with metal precisely yeah i mean i wasn't i was joking but not like if radiohead were to tour on an album and then go record it i mean who would be able to know anyways if <laughs> someone's fucking it up or not? Right? Yeah. And I like that band. It's just, uh, you know, a lot of their choices are um, up to interpretation. Agreed. Yeah. Well, Joe, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to come and uh, hang out with us and uh, want to wish you luck on the record release. Thank you so much. It's been really great. I really enjoyed chatting with both of you. And uh, thanks for having me. Man, so diagnosing issues with your playing, super important. It's so important because you don't really get to hear them until you're under a microscope, I.E. in a recording session. And then you realize you can't fucking play the parts. And everybody's laughing at you and throwing <laughs> food. All the producers getting angrier and angrier and you can see it on his face and then that's bringing anxiety through your body and then you play it even worse. And then he takes the guitar and plays it himself better than you can. In like five seconds. Yeah. So that's a situation that people want to avoid. Yep. And we've both been in them. I definitely have. I have too. Trust me. I want to avoid that. One of the best ways to avoid it is to get highly critical of your own playing in advance. Yeah. I believe that the only real way to do that is by recording yourself and actually hearing what the fuck is going on. Yeah. That's step one. Step two is uh, figuring out where the mistakes are and breaking them down into bite-sized pieces and drilling the shit out of them. Yeah, it's about finding the problem zone, doing a couple of notes either side of that problem zone and keep building it until the problem's no longer there. Um, and when it happens again, which inevitably will, because sometimes our hands just don't want to do what we want them to do, and then you just do it again and repeat. Tell me your opinion, but I think that downpicking Jim on the Riff Hard site offers a really good way to work on this. It does. It takes all of the modern techniques. I'm talking like, you know, hammer-ons, pull-offs, tapping, you know, endurance, everything that is required to really go into the recording studio and breaking them down into bite-sized pieces so you can really hone in on that technique. And, you know, I, when I have problems, I often resort to the down-picking gym. In fact, I resort to it every day to warm up, but... I've noticed that if I focus on that for 5, 10, 15 minutes a day, then it sort of alleviates any issues that I might have in a recording session or even in a live situation because it really helps me build on those different techniques in different ways on different strings and in different parts of the fretboard. Give me a, a breakdown of uh, how you would approach it, like uh, just say like hammer-ons in the down-picking gym. One of the exercises that I really, really enjoy doing is actually the rest placement exercise, which is based more off of 
learning to play on different beats of the bar, which I think is a common problem for guitar players where, you know, say you're on beat five of eight within a four, four phrase. It often feels quite strange to hit that beat and really honing in on something as small as that means that you've added it to your vocabulary. So you know how that feels. And the same thing goes for hammer-ons and pull-offs. Like just doing a hammer-on when you're playing by yourself is completely different than how it feels in a recording situation with a metronome and a drummer. So it's honing in on how it feels in that particular situation. And I don't know if you've noticed this, Al, but if you repeat something like uh, in a recording situation, like a riff, like 10, 20 times, it starts to start feeling a little bit different because you're getting into what it's meant to feel like. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And it really focuses on that sort of micro analytical approach. It's really focusing in on that, um, how things should feel, how they should sound. And most importantly, if you're recording yourself at the same time, you can hear back exactly what it's supposed to sound like. So when you do get that right take, oh, it's meant to sound like that. Okay, now I understand. But that's only doable through lots of repetition and in-depth analysis, I think. Exactly. Without recording, you can't hear what you're doing. And we spoke about that in the podcast as to why there's just too many other things going on. Yeah, exactly. Well, downpickingjim at riffhard.com. Get on it and get better. Definitely get better. You all need to get better. So, uh... Even I need to get better. <laughs> Everyone yeah. will always be better. All right, Brown, see you next week. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.